The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's sports podcast, Hang Up and Listen, for the week of March 4th, 2019. On this week's show, we'll talk about the Lakers' late-season slide and the increasing likelihood that LeBron James will miss the NBA playoffs. We'll also discuss Bryce Harper's record-setting $330 million contract with the Philadelphia Phillies and Jason Witten's return to the Dallas Cowboys after a not-so-scintillating season in the Monday Night Football broadcast booth. Here with me in our Washington, D.C. studio is my co-host, Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Good morning, Josh. And also with us this week, we're happy to have joining us from L.A., uh, is Jamel Hill, who you probably know from her 12-year stint at ESPN and who you are getting to know as a staff writer at The Atlantic, where she's written pieces recently on Colin Kaepernick and Kamala Harris. Jamel, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart. The seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady. Live only on Netflix. So let us jump in to uh, the LeBron scenario. On Saturday night in Phoenix, he scored 27 points, uh, got 16 assists and nine rebounds as the Lakers lost to the worst team in the NBA, falling to the Suns 118-109. LeBron said after the game that he's not here to harp on negativity, but we certainly are here to harp on negativity. The Lakers now have just an 8% chance to make the playoffs, according to 538. LA is 30-33, and four and a half games behind the Spurs for the eighth seed in the Western Conference playoffs. They're actually so mediocre that they'd be out of the Eastern Conference playoffs too, a game behind Orlando. And they have just one more win than Anthony Davis's tanking New Orleans Pelicans. If the Lakers miss the playoffs, the biggest reason will be that they went 6-12 and when the 34-year-old LeBron was out with a groin injury. They were 20-14 and when he, got wor- uh, when he got hurt against the Warriors on Christmas, and they were looking okay. Then again, they're only 5-7 and seven since he's come back. What is going on with this team, Jamel? Well, uh, I think um, if you, you know, watch LeBron and some of the uh, awkwardness, some of the um, you know, issues that can spring up whenever he joins a new team, that some of this was to be expected. However... I think the idea of LeBron not being in the playoffs is, is what's so shocking. But, I mean, the Lakers were a mess when he got there. I mean, it's, it's a reason why they were in the position that, that they were in. They certainly have, you know, some young talent that I think a lot of people see uh, potentially has a, a bright future, Kyle Kuzma, Brandon Ingram. But they had issues. When LeBron decided to go to Los Angeles, there were sort of two schools of thought. One was... He's going there to retire. He wants to live in L.A. He wants to focus on other things. Give him a break. There is no roster there. This is at least a one-season rebuild operation. They brought in, you know, who did they sign? Rajon Rondo, JaVale McGee, Lance Stevenson. He was not surrounded. Michael Beasley. Beasley, He was not exactly surrounded with other superstars. There was no dream team out there. Um, But then who's to blame for that? You know, 
the chickens were going to come home to roost here. And there was definitely a chance that they were not going to make the playoffs. I think a lot of people were reluctant to say not make the playoffs. A lot of people were saying, you know, eighth seed, seventh seed, you know, it's going to be tight. But they put this team together. LeBron had a hand in selecting the free agents that were going to be added to this roster. And it hasn't really worked. The injury obviously hasn't helped, but it hasn't worked. Here's my unpopular, I'm sure, uh, take about this, is that I didn't think this season even mattered, honestly, because I knew based off who they were signing, as you mentioned, Rajon Rondo, Michael Beasley, Lance Stevenson, they wanted to give him some veteran presence, a little bit of defensive presence. Those, to me, were kind of locker room moves, if you will. They have a very young group. A lot of guys need to grow up. Um, I think they wanted to kind of accelerate that process to see what they could get. This whole season was all about putting themselves in position to get Anthony Davis. That's what this was about. Now, I know some people look at this and say, well, that didn't work and that blew up in their faces. No, it didn't. Anthony Davis, they still, to me, are in the pole position to do this because at some point, as we have seen, New Orleans must trade this man. It just didn't happen when they wanted it to because they didn't want to deal with the the Lakers. Their pride got before common sense. I think eventually this will happen. And when that happens, all of this year, it will really be put into perspective as so much of a transition year. And, and look, this is not to say LeBron James will ever admit, I don't care if I make the playoffs. I think he came into it, obviously, with him being the competitor uh, that he's been with the idea of doing that. I just so don't happen to think the sky is falling if LeBron sits out uh, if he isn't involved in the NBA playoffs for the first time in like what since his rookie or or, or sophomore season. Well, if that's the plan, there are a couple of potential issues with the plan. Number one, it seems like the Pelicans might not want to trade uh, Davis to the Lakers out of spite, uh, just because they're so pissed at how this went down, and if the Celtics manage to put uh, together a, a package that includes Jason Tatum, I think they're going to want to send him to to Boston. And the Lakers' young players, you know, with every game that they lose, look less and less enticing. I mean, if you look at player efficiency rating for the Lakers, you have LeBron at number eight and the NBA, JaVale is number 37. And then you have to go down to number 143, to get to Kyle Kuzma, then Ingram is at, at 170. I mean, th- these guys are young still and and talented, but they're just not that great right now. And I'm not sure that um, the, the Lakers are, are kind of in a, a double bind here where these guys aren't good enough to lead them to the playoffs this year. And they might not even be good enough to, uh, you know, put together a trade package to get the guy they really want. Well, here's the other thing about this, too. The, the, of course, the Pelicans in the moment were upset because, you know, clearly the way this, you know, with this trade demand getting out, um, which was interesting seeing that reaction, because um, when players leave franchises, people complain, um, you know, fans especially, that the player didn't give somebody warning or they should have told them eh, maybe two years is a little bit too early. But at least he was honest with them. He may not, they may not have wanted to hear it. But he was honest and said, hey, I, I don't plan to resign here. I want to go somewhere else. Okay, that's one layer. Out of spite, they didn't trade with the Lakers, which was stupid, in my opinion, because part of the reason Anthony Davis was able to launch this um, trade demand is that he is in the power position. We've seen it happen countless times in, in, in the NBA, maybe a little differently here. But once a player lets it known or lets it be known that he doesn't want to play there, the player pretty much um, 
has a lot of the leverage and he still has the leverage of not wanting or not having to resign or having to sign with anybody um, until he really or having to sign rather a long term deal with yeah. anybody. Uh, so he still has that as a leverage. Eventually, they're going to have to deal with the Lakers, whether they like it or not. And I think for the Pelicans, what they have to understand, um, I hear what you're saying about the Celtics, but generally speaking, I think these deals will only get worse. But spite or no spite, it is possible that someone else will offer the Pelicans a better package for Anthony Davis, which leaves the Lakers where? I mean, there are free agents. I don't know what their cap space situation is going into this offseason, but Kawhi Leonard is a free agent and he has you know, been, been mentioned with the Lakers for two years now. Uh, Kevin Durant will be a free agent. Clay Thompson will be a free agent. I don't know what their cap space situation is going into this offseason exactly, but there are free agents out there. Kawhi Leonard has been linked to the Lakers for a couple of years. Kevin Durant's going to be a free agent. Klay Thompson's going to be a free agent. If they can't consummate a deal with the Pelicans for Anthony Davis, is that an option for LeBron insisting to Rob Palenka, the general manager, that they bring somebody in. It seems like they have to bring somebody in. They're going to need to do something. Yeah, and it's just a question of whether those guys will want to come to this roster and will want to play with LeBron. Uh, You know, there's been rumors, whispers that guys don't want to play with him, which seems kind of insane to me. But, um, you know, what LeBron said (laughs) during the Pacers game when they – got blown out and the and the fan the fans in Indiana were chanting uh LeBron wants to trade you at every player as they came to the free throw line. I mean there's a lot of pressure that goes along with it. It doesn't seem like anybody's having a huge amount of fun this year, but you know, it all can turn around. The the issue that I have with the strategy, and it does seem like it is a strategy, is that LeBron is not indestructible. He got hurt uh, for a long time, for the f- first time really in his career this year. He's going to be 35. Mm-hmm. I mean, if the if the strategy is to just punt full seasons, you know, you're not going to be winning when LeBron left. is 40. That uh, there's a limited window here. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if I had any concern, it would be that is even though LeBron has lived a very charmed existence. Uh, regarding injuries up until now, I would be more concerned about the decline, the natural and inevitable decline um, that he'll have, uh, just as any NBA superstar has has had before him. Um, you know, he is, you know, certainly the model when it comes to the type of physical shape that he's in and how he's taking care of himself. But again, at some point, you just sort of expect um, nature to kind of win that battle. Um, but with that, even still, um, you know, I mean, I realize other teams can can make offers for the Pelicans, but the, but the one remaining question mark is still, does Anthony Davis want to sign for them long term? Are teams OK with giving up X amount of players and he has not committed to signing with them long term? And that's why I think they made the leverage play that it did. And look, it, it worked for Kyrie Irving. All right. He put it out there. You know, technically, no, the the Cavaliers did not have to trade him then. He still had to believe another two years on this deal. But once he made it known that he didn't want to be there, then he wound up, you know, going to Boston. So, uh, Jamel, you're narrating a LeBron documentary called Shut Up and Dribble. You said in a piece in The Washington Post that you're not friends with him, but you've probably spent a little more time with him than Stefan and I have, I would, <laughs> I would wager. Um, 
Um, he has talked about being secure in his legacy, that he doesn't need to prove anything or accomplish anything else. I'm curious for your thoughts on kind of what he is is thinking now in terms of this last phase of his career. He's obviously, you know, you don't need to be friends or friendly with LeBron to know that given how competitive he is, he's surely pissed off with what's going on with his <laughs> team right now. Yeah, um, but, you know, this is where I think maturity and experience have helped him. Uh, I think he reacts to this situation uh, a lot different had he not gone through some of the things that he went through in Miami. And for that matter, the second time around in in Cleveland, I think he understands a little bit more that this is a process. You got to kind of play the long game. Now, did he expect the long game to include all this, losing to Phoenix, Um, you know, being a team on the outside looking in in terms of the playoffs? Probably not. Uh, I think most of us probably thought if you have LeBron, it could be me and uh, it could be the three of us with him and we figure we'd be good for eight seed at least. Right. So, um, but, and I think that part is, has been the, the more surprising thing. Uh, look, I know it's all this talk now about his, his legacy. And if he doesn't make the playoffs, what that'll mean. I'm sure the Jordan stands are loving the fact that he might not make the playoffs so they can point to something else that Michael didn't do supposedly um, not in terms of not making the playoffs, but like at this age and this stage in, in his career, they can lord this over all the LeBron fans. But, um, you know, I, I do think that he is a lot more patient um, than he has been at other points in his career. Some of this could just be age. I mean, I, I know there have been assertions that he's just kind of on cruise control just because he's already got the titles, he's got the MVPs, his legacy is is secure. Um, but I think with the security of legacy comes the sort of peace in knowing that uh, that everything will eventually work itself out. And look, I know he's not getting any younger, but I, I do think... Um, come next season uh this will be this this picture will look much differently than it does right now i tell you what it's gonna be really strange um if lebron's not in the playoffs and i'm just wondering what kind of impact that will have on overall excitement for the playoffs i mean i know some people would be you know happy to see sort of a new storyline to some degree but it, it will be kind of bizarre if if we have a playoffs you know without lebron james he hasn't not made the playoffs since what 2004 2005. Yeah, since he was 20 years old. The the thing is just being in the west um you can't really cruise through the regular season which the Cavs kind of did last year. LeBron didn't have his best regular season and then probably as a result had his best postseason, but that you know it's 82 games against better competition. He got hurt. And that's also what he signed up for in moving to the West is that, you know, especially as he gets older, if you have to play with a depleted roster and carry guys uh, through the regular season, it's just, it's just not really going to, going to work. You know, if he was in the, in the East, they would surely have a better record. Yeah, you would think so. Even though um, to some degree, I feel like, uh, we we might be underestimating the East a little bit, which has, you know, um, you know, some of it has been because of LeBron James not being in the conference anymore. I think some of it's just natural evolution. When you look at, you know, the Bucks, for example, how they seem to have taken another step. Um, a lot of us, everybody's trying to figure out what the hell is going on with the Celtics, of course, but they 
you know, come the postseason, they're obviously will be very formidable. And and then, of course, Toronto. Um, But, you know, that that being said, I I agree with you. There are some things he could kind of get away with in the East that he can't get away with in the West because there's just too many teams. Um, You know, you look up at certain, you know, days and you see like Golden State is like the fifth seed. (laughs) You know what I'm saying? So it um, he had a much smaller, uh, I think, margin for error. Um, you know, than he had when he was playing in the in the opposite conference. But um, I think, you know, more than anything, um, you know, there's just a lot of things that people just aren't used to seeing um, when it comes to LeBron, wondering if physically this is the start of of, of his natural regression, um, especially given how long he was out with the groin injury. Um, you know, w- wondering if, it, you know, if already we've seen his best days. But um, I have a feeling that he probably has a little something left in the tank. Basketball references updated numbers have the Lakers at a 1% chance of making wow. the playoffs. There's a chance, man. 1%. <laughs> There's a chance. There's a chance. Before we get to our conversation about Bryce Harper, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I will chat with Jamel about her transition from ESPN to The Atlantic and what it's like to return to print after being on TV. To hear that conversation, join Slate Plus for just $35 for the first year. You can sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase, every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. All right, let's talk some baseball now. The Bryce Harper free agency saga was oddly unriveting to me, Um, maybe because it dragged on into spring training, maybe because as front offices have become more cautious and analytical, baseball free agency isn't as freewheeling and entertaining anymore, or maybe because so many teams were anonymously trashing Harper that I started to believe he wasn't very good at baseball. In any event, it only takes one, and the Philadelphia Phillies were that one, giving Harper the most money in a baseball contract ever, three hundred and. $30 $30 million over 13 years, as you mentioned earlier, Josh, which allegedly was Harper's main goal all along, or at least the goal of his agent, Scott Boris. Josh, why am I so jaded about Bryce Harper? Am I just fatigued, cynical, unconvinced that he will lead the Phillies to 13 World Series championships? Why? Sound, sounds like you're uh, all three, friend. Yeah. Why Why choose? Uh, false choice. It was interesting to me to see in the aftermath, a lot of blanks get filled in that we just didn't have the answers to during this long four-month period, which was really an information blackout. It turned out the Dodgers, um, you know, if he wanted to go to L.A. to build his entertainment empire, he had that option. He could have uh, had a four-year deal in L.A. with a, some 40-something million dollar a year average uh, value. He also could have gone to San Francisco and gotten $310 million. But with the the Philly thing, he got the ability to stay there for the entire rest of his career, 13 years. Um, you know, if the earth is still uh, rotating around the sun, then he, he will still be in Philly. Um, and given the relatively lower 
average annual value of the contract in the 20 millions. They still have the financial flexibility to get Mike Trout two years from now. Jamel, I didn't think that we were going to have to go through this in baseball, <laughs> too, <laughs> where it's now the big story is, are the Phillies going to get Mike Trout for the next two years? Well, you, you know, I think what was interesting um, about this whole entire Bryce Harper uh, process, if you will, I do think the fact it it, it kind of hit on maybe the struggles of baseball to be relevant, right? Um, I, now, people have to understand, because I'm sure seam heads are already like, oh, but baseball attendance is up, and they point to, you know, how the attendance numbers do, you know, often look carry a better picture than the overall relevancy of the sport itself. And, you know, when you have a, a free agent or I guess formerly a free agent, but somebody at Bryce Harper, them being on a ver- uh, the verge of, of, of plotting out, you know, the next course of their career, a young, talented, well-known superstar. And for that process to be as anticlimactic and as boring as it was, was kind of, to me, said everything about the issues that baseball has in terms of relevancy. Now, how this will impact Mike Trout is 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 kind of amazing because I saw the float the figure floated out there about um, him possibly getting a contract worth three hundred and fifty million. I honestly thought it would be higher than that. I thought he might be baseball's first four hundred million dollar player, which I know sounds so ridiculous to say, um, but yet and still, when you look at his production, um, the fact that he's just been the best player in baseball for years, it's just kind of hard not to given what Bryce Harper got rationalize um it's hard not to rationalize him getting and receiving that kind of money you know with with harper and with manny machado the the storyline four months ago was they're only 26 years old for once you can give a player a 10-year contract and expect full return in a production sense on that contract. Um, That was the great thing about these guys coming to free agency at relatively young ages. But Scott Boris is so good that he got the owners in this case to operate against their current perceived interests. 13 years may end up being fine. And as you said, Josh, the average annual value makes this seem a little more reasonable than if it had been like 30 million a year for 13 years. Could be a bargain if Harper stays durable, though he has not shown signs of that in his career up until this point. Um, But it does still show the awesome power of players and agents to manufacture markets where necessary. And that's a good thing for players. I mean, this is a $10 billion sport, regardless of what you say about attendance numbers. I I don't agree with what what you're saying there about the length of the deal. I think it's actually a good deal for... The Phillies, I mean, would you be saying it's a it was a better deal if it was 10 years, $330 million? I mean, I think I think they actually got a discount in terms of the, what people were expecting. Well, they the did annual... get a discount. I mean, they got a discount because there's also no opt-outs in there for either party. Um, but it does bind them to Bryce Harper until he's almost 40 years old. And history has shown that baseball players after the age of 35, their production declines. Yeah, I mean, I think this is a case where the Phillies are actually getting a good deal, but one they might not end up being happy with, if that makes sense. Yeah. Because um, Harper is saying all the right things, except for how he said he wants to bring a championship to D.C. and a kind of a <laughs> Freudian slip. Oops. But, you know, he's he's saying he's not going to wear 34 anymore because that was Roy Halliday's number. Um, and 
that he should be the last guy to wear it. And Philly, he's saying he wants to be the kind of hard-nosed, gritty player. Gritty. That Philadelphia yeah. likes. Gritty. Gritty, works. gritty. Yeah. exactly. Yeah. Um, but Harper is, I, I don't know, he, he's a little bit grating. Feels like he, he has only a little bit of control over how well the, the Phillies are going to do long-term because he's only one guy on a 25-man roster. I can easily see the fan base there turning on him just because Philly fans turn on everyone. And so in that case, if if things go sour and he's locked in for 13 years with no opt-out and a no, no trade clause, it seems possible that both parties might end up regretting this. Who's it? Who knows? Well, I think, um, you know, people were just struck by the number. I mean, you, you do bring up a good point in the sense that if you, if you look at the season, you know, the salary he's making per season, that doesn't sound awful. All right. Like, what is it like 25 million a season, um, or somewhere thereabouts. Yeah, so yeah. 28 million a season. Okay. So if somebody said, Hey, Bryce Harper is going to make $28 million a season, we'd all say, yeah, yeah that, that kind of seems about right. Right. For, you know, a player of his caliber. But I, I do think it, it is funny how when, um, and this happens in professional sports all the time, when people hear a certain number, um, how it changes the expectations or even changes the perception of the player. Because, I mean, I wouldn't say all of a sudden, because I know there, because of the injuries and some other things, there's always been, you know, some some interesting questions about how good Bryce Harper actually is. But you give him this money, and then especially seeing Manny Machado get $300 million, thinking about what Mike Trout is potentially worth. And both of them— 500. Exactly. I mean, <laughs> it could be five hundred. Well, when you look at his production, I mean, like I said, I'm I'm truly shocked. I I would not be surprised if he got four hundred million dollars. But you look at what their wins above replacement are compared to Bryce Harper's, and then everybody's like, oh, well, if he's getting that, you know, his and his wins above replacement are not the same as these two, then that makes him overrated and, and this and that. But again, this is you you make what the what the market will bear. I, I think the most positive sign for Philly fans is probably the fact that you can still do this and still be in play for Mike Trout in two years. Sam Miller of ESPN, our our pal Stefan, had a really good piece on how Harper was touted as baseball's LeBron when he was sixteen years old and looking at where he's lived up to that. Um, you know, he's an MVP. He's one of the best players in the game and where he's fallen short. And one of the really fascinating ways in which he has fallen short, if you compare him to a LeBron-like figure or any of baseball's best players, is that he's really, really inconsistent. So <laughs> I know I know that we're you know not into batting average anymore, but um, he has a 283 batting average over the past four years. And his Annual batting averages those years were 330, 243, 319, and 249. He hasn't hit within 30 points of 283 any of those years. So, Stefan, I mean, one he, of— He's an odd-number season batting average guy. <laughs> <laughs> but um, that's just been a really fascinating issue in his career. He's gotten hurt. Some years he, like, plays no defense. Some years he looks like, you know, the— second coming of of Babe Ruth. And and Stefan, I think that'll be a factor in how he's perceived by fans. You can't look at the aggregate numbers. You have to look at season by season. If a guy is like a super shitty season, then 
you know, fans aren't going to be like, oh, well, on average, he's good. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's what was, I think, interesting about his courtship here. Scott Boris had to overcome a lot of these factors that his he's a defensive liability. His wins above replacement are is really low, um, like 86th, I think, in war last year. Um, he's injury prone. He may break down over time because he has such a powerful swing. Um, and, you know, balancing that is the the upside of the sign curve. You know, his, his, his on-base percentage is sixth best all time for players with at least 900 games. And the other five are Jimmy Fox, Mickey Mantle, Ty Cobb, Mel Ott, and Mike Trout. Um, and... The Phillies need to sign Mel Ott and Jimmy Fox, then they'd be really sad. That'd be a pretty good outfield. <laughs> yeah, well, just when you thought Scott Boris's magic was was maybe um, yeah. done or petering out, here he comes reminding us all that he is indeed still Scott Boris. Absolutely. And, and you mentioned the Dodgers offer. I mean, it was clear to Boris that Harper didn't want to go somewhere for four years, even if the average annual value of the contract was $40 million plus. So that was kind of manufacturing the market. The, the Giants were a very late entry into this bidding. And I think Scott Boris found an old style baseball owner in John Middleton, the chairman of the Phillies, who had said at the beginning of the free agent season that the team not only had money, but, quote, maybe even would be a little stupid about it. That's all Scott Boris needs is a stupid owner. And there's always going to be a stupid. This owner. wasn't stupid. No, <laughs> Very no but, it, but it certainly served. Boris's purposes. You still needed an owner in a market that took four months to materialize and develop that was willing to go 13 years and go to a record size deal. Well, I guess the the, the bigger, um, well, not the bigger, but like, I mean, I, I do wonder, um, you know, how this might what this might eventually be the impact of of Bryce Harper's, you know, legacy as it is, as you just mentioned, like so far he's known as an inc inconsistent player. So if he finishes his career and he's got a whole bunch of money, still has this level of inconsistency. It's sort of, you know, I, I just think back to when he was on the cover of Sports Illustrated when he was a teenager, you know, and um, uh, how he was billed as the next great phenom uh, phenom in baseball and how he was going to be the one to sort of take baseball into this new stratosphere as being a young, you know, hip, um, you know, brash player. And um, it's happened in pockets, but it's just kind of interesting how narratives can change over the course of a, of a career like his. Hey guys, it is Ryan. I'm not sure if you know this about me, but I'm a bit of a fun fanatic when I can. I like to work, but I like fun too. It's a thing. And now the truth is out there. I can tell you about my favorite place to have fun. Chumba Casino. They have hundreds of social casino style games to choose from with new games released each week. You can play for free anytime, anywhere and each day brings a new chance to collect daily bonuses. So join me in the fun. Sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Jason Witten did not have a very smooth debut in the Monday Night Football booth while his former Dallas Cowboys teammate Tony Romo became known as a fun-loving, play-predicting, broadcasting savant. Witten got a reputation as not that. Uh, here is a short clip from a compilation put together by Sports Illustrated. He has to understand, you can live for another day, Joe. You're not going to get them all. It doesn't matter. He pulls another rabbit out of his head. But 
It's Ebicam, Jason. It's Ebicam. Just to be clear, I did not put that uh, wacky music in the background. That was uh, Sports Illustrated. The 36-year-old Witten, who retired in May 2018 to join Monday Night Football, announced last Thursday that he's hanging up his microphone and heading back to the field, saying in a statement, the fire inside of me to compete and play this game is just burning too strong. Adding, this was completely my decision, and I'm very comfortable with it. I'm looking forward to getting back in the dirt. Jamel, I find it hard to believe that the criticism Witten heard during his rookie year as a broadcaster didn't influence his decision to rejoin the Cowboys. You're also somebody who knows uh, about the challenges of of being on television. Uh, What do you think is going on with him? Yeah, I do think because he wasn't as maybe successful as – you know, people expected or as maybe even he expected that that was at least a factor um, in it. But I don't know if it was the only factor because the decision to go back to playing football, even if after you've been making um, after, you know, you you haven't been getting hit for an entire season and you've been making pretty good money while not doing it. I, I do think that um, maybe we're perhaps underestimating his desire to play again, that maybe it was a little bit stronger, but just because the transition in the television wasn't very smooth. It just made that decision that much, you know, easier. But, you know, Jason Witten kind of um, is an example of of what, you know, I've certainly witnessed um, being at ESPN. It's like, I think there's, and I, I don't think he had this mindset, but I think there is a mindset in uh, among professional athletes that going that doing television is easy and that all they have to do is know the game and that's all it requires in order to be a good broadcaster again i'm not saying that was jason's mentality but i do i would often you know in the hallways and in conversations um with various athletes that came through espn that was completely their impression and what you find and i even found this as somebody who was a journalist but i was a, a print journalist um, what you find is TV is f- much harder than you think that it is. And especially, you know, uh, when you jump from uh, going from playing to the Monday night booth, it's not like he didn't get a whole lot of reps in between. You know, like he it wasn't like he was, um, you know, on a bunch of NFL shows and, and, and maybe even within the ESPN, you know, ecosystem doing like NFL Live and Sports Center and getting all these reps in to um, really figure out the ins and out of, outs of television. I mean, he went right into the thick of it and jumped immediately to one of the premier jobs in sports. Everybody's not going to be a Tony Romo. I mean, that just that's a that to me is 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 one of the most. Um, uh, that's one of the biggest anomalies I've ever seen in in yeah. sports broadcasting right. is Tony Romo. Right? I wonder if they texted each other after after games, being like. Hey, great game, man. Uh, great job, you too. <laughs> great effort out there. <laughs> yeah, and, and then especially, you know, some of it is is by position. I mean, quarterbacks study the game in a completely different way than, say, somebody who played tight end uh, like, he is, like he did. And um, so I, I say all that to say is that, um, you know, there I'm sure that Jason Witten um, could have – there had to be an option on the table for him to stay. Like I know a lot of people are sort of theorizing and speculating that ESPN kind of nudged him out of the door. And I don't, I mean, personally, I just don't think so. And that's having no inside information, but I just can't see them wanting to punt on something after one season and give people the satisfaction of saying, see, we told you. So he could have stayed 
made money, not get hit, and he chose not to. And to me, I think this is more about his ability to play or the desire to play football more than him, you know, not being you know, great in the booth. Right. Let's stipulate that he did not get a fair deal in terms of his broadcasting career. He was, as you said, plunged into the high, one of the highest profile and uh, broadcasting jobs. It wasn't like he was going to be on a second or a third broadcast crew for one of the, uh, over the air networks. Um, and he came in at a season, uh, when his former teammate is the superstar of all superstars, of rookie broadcasters. He had no honeymoon period. He did not have enough training. He may have gotten better. And maybe I'm being charitable, but he, you know, he obviously would have gotten somewhat better. Maybe he yeah. wouldn't have turned into Romo, but he would have gotten better doing this. So then the question is, why play? I mean, he's 37. He has taken an enormous number of hits in 15 seasons in the NFL. Um, the reality for a lot of these guys is that it is very difficult to move on, even if you move on into a high-profile job like being a Monday night football color commentator. Um, I, I texted our friend Nate Jackson, formerly of the Broncos, to ask him what he thought. And Nate said that Witten's brain is wired to be a football player. The rest of his brain is empty. Not very charitable. I don't think the rest of Jason's brain is entirely empty. It's a little harsh. A little harsh. A little harsh. <laughs> um, but then I asked Nate also, like, how do you come back at age 37? When you stop playing in the NFL, you don't work out as intensely. You lose weight quickly. You eat differently. Your muscle mass goes down. Um, your body adjusts to not punishing itself the way you have to punish yourself to be an NFL player. And it's just harder to resume that routine at age 37. Nate was actually thought that Witten could do this because yeah, of the kind of player that he is. You bring up a really good point um, because <laughs> I used to have, I used to joke um, Witten's last year when I would see him on the field um, that he was no longer out there sh uh, running, that he was out there just shuffling his feet like he's just out there for the cardio because you know I mean, he was not you know he's never been some kind of speed demon don't get me wrong right but um you know it was just kind of clear that like yeah you know best days are kind of kind of over um still yeah is he still reliable you need a big third down yeah i mean i think he can still produce in that regard but i'm with you like i i, I think um and especially considering you know, how he has, how the job was perceived that he did in the booth. If he comes back and he's not good after this year off, then, you know, those two storylines are going to meld together, whether he likes it or not. And, and in a way that's going to be a disservice to somebody who had a really great career. And by all accounts was an incredible teammate, you know, solid member in his community. Um, it, it's sort of, it's, sometimes it's funny when you see this in sports when how somebody finishes their career becomes a bigger headline than the things that they did within it. And so um, it would be kind of shameful if that happened to him. But yet he has put himself in the position for that exact same thing to happen to him. Well, he's on a really narrow band of players who I think could potentially do this. He um, played 236 consecutive games with the Cowboys at a position where he took a lot of punishment. Um, he was not somebody who, you know, we don't know this definitively, but he's not a guy who was reported to have issues with concussions. 
Um, he's somebody who maybe just due to genetics or due to his ability to t- take care of his body, seems like he could actually still play football at the age of 37. And, you know, Brian Curtis of The Ringer wrote a piece. You know, Brian talked to him during the Super Bowl at a time when it seemed like Witten was going to come back and do Monday Night Football again. But Witten told, you know, Brian about how he, you know, drank, tried to get his broadcast partners into the habit of drinking tequila at in the bus after the game just to try to get some of the old camaraderie of being on a, a team. He's somebody who clearly missed. You know, we talk about football players and other athletes in kind of a dark way, how they, they have, find nothing that can replace mm-hmm. being competitive on the field. With Witten, it seems like maybe it wasn't as dark, but he clearly just wanted to be in the locker room with his friends and his teammates again. And it seems like the Cowboys want that too. They've talked openly and, you know, since this was announced about how he'd be a good mentor for his teammates and be a good good locker room guy. And so I think Jamel maybe, even if he doesn't have the production on the field, if he suits up and especially if the Cowboys succeed, there can be a narrative around him as, you know, conquering hero returns home and helps you know, lead the the young charges to glory. To a 9-7 and seven record and a first-round <laughs> loss in the playoffs. Um, Nate had a good point, which was that Witten's so good at what he does as a tight end. He is such a technical player with so much experience that you know how to handle your body when you're on the field. You know how to protect yourself better when you're in your mid-30s and you're a future Hall of Famer and you know how everything operates on the field. There are no surprises. So Nate was saying, like, look, if he can get into shape, and that's a big if, he thinks, you know, potentially he can, you know, catch 70 passes next year and be a productive member of the team in both, you know, both on the field and in the ways you describe Josh off the field. Yeah, no, he, um, I mean, he definitely, um, you know, can have an impact in in that, you know, locker room and, um, you know, certainly, especially uh, as the Cowboys continue to kind of figure themselves out uh, as they have been doing seemingly uh, for the last 25 or so years, uh, that he can be a stabilizing, you know, force, you know, for them. And um, that'll bode well. But, you know, you just, I I guess it, um, you know, I, I would just hope that, um, the reason that he didn't leave uh, to go to play football, I, I just hope it wasn't primarily about the job he, his, you know, the evaluation of his job as broadcaster. And and again, I know it was rough, um, but you know, there, TV and television, you tend to get better, you know, over time. The more that you 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 do it, and so um, maybe as you said, another season he might have been you know, a whole lot better in a job that, you know, you really don't have the greatest margin error because people have the assumption uh, that you, you know, know what you're doing because they put you in such a, a elevated position. I, I guess the curious thing that always struck me too was, you know, I've heard a, a lot of Jason Witten interviews over the years and he's, you know, always been fine and thoughtful, but he never struck me as the guy that you would put in the Monday night booth. Like that just, I don't know, like John Gruden, I could totally see because, of how enthusiastic and excitable that he was. And there are certain personalities that you totally see why they would be good for TV. 
it's of no shock that Steve Smith is great on television. Um, Steve Smith, who mocked Jason Witten's ability on television. But Witten is not like excitable. He's not super interesting. He he always seemed like like he was very kind of even keel, said the quote unquote right things, which means saying the boring things, right? Steve Smith said, I'm actually good on TV, so I'll just stay here when asked if he would go back to the NFL too. That's what I'm saying. It's like usually most people that you see, there's like there's sometimes people out of left field. And while I don't think I would have predicted that Tony Romo would be this in broadcasting, I would have totally bet he would be a, a good broadcaster just because, um, you know, he was, you know, kind of insightful. And while he did kind of uh, lean on at times the, the, the kind of quarterback cliches, but I thought generally speaking, he gave a pretty honest and, and thoughtful interview. But Witten just never, I mean, that one just, to me, was very surprising that this would be somebody who you consider, um, you know, for that anyway. It'd be very interesting to see, um, you know, who replaces him because um, they're going to, you know, they're, I don't know if they're going to face more or less pressure because they're following Jason Witten. Last thing before we move on, Jamel, another thing that Brian Curtis wrote in his piece was, Witten had never gotten bad press in his life as a player. Right now on TV, yeah. he was getting his ass kicked on Twitter every week. Do you have any uh, insight into what it's like to get your ass kicked on Twitter? <laughs> well, uh, let's see. Ass kicking is kind of a um, you know that's 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 a relative term because uh, <laughs> people criticizing you doesn't mean they're right. That's in this right. Case, That's you right. know what I'm saying? Doesn't mean they're right. All right. They just have something to say about what you're doing. But you a lot know, of people what? have a lot to say when you're on ESPN. That's they, they they do. I mean, when you're when you're um, uh, you know, sports fans. I know this will shock you. They're they're not always the most mature bunch. Okay, <laughs> you know, um, they're not always the most rational people to talk to. And um, you know, I, it's it's funny because people get so worked up about the people who call games. And while there's certainly broadcasters I liked better than other, the others, the kind of vitriol some of them tend to inspire, I've never felt that way about any broadcaster in my life. Like, look what happens whenever Joe Buck is calling the game, right? Like, people, I'm shocked that he's considered polarizing. Like, I don't understand this. Because I, it's, it's, I mean, I like listening to Joe Buck. It's, it's fine. There's no, unless somebody has got to be just a thousand times annoying or next level annoying for me to even notice that they're that bad or that good or that it impacts or impacts or affects the way that I watch the game or takes away from my enjoyment. It's kind of surprising to me. It's something I don't quite understand. So, but yeah, no, that was, that's a great observation to make. It's like, this is, I mean, I, I'd have to think from a, just purely a playing perspective. When is the last time Jason Witten got criticized for anything versus the pummeling he took week in and week out? <laughs> you think of professional athletes as being sort of having this iron skin, but they're pretty fragile. And this is a different kind of fragile. You can sort of rationalize your physical failures, dropping a cat, dropping a pass, missing a block. It happens. And players move on to the next game and the next play. They're conditioned to do that. They have no choice. Fans are the ones that get much more angry about about a, a player's failure on the field than typically the player does. But in this case, Witten was doing something he had never done before in his life in a profession that he was not familiar with, that he was not comfortable in yet, that he didn't have this, this historical legacy, this career. So, yeah, I can see him being 
pretty brought down emotionally and psychologically from uh, from the criticism. Poor Jason. Yeah, he'll be okay. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Now, uh, let's do Afterballs. What is our uh, Afterball name this week? Who or what are we honoring? Well, it's, uh, it's NFL Combine season, of course. So it's a silly season in professional football. And that means that, you know, there's always those ridiculous questions that are asked of NFL prospects at the Combine in Indianapolis. Is your mother a prostitute? That sort of thing? Yeah, that kind of thing. It seems like the NFL has eliminated a lot of that by, by fiat. So we're on to sort of a new level of dopey questions for the players. Jeff Legwald of ESPN, um, who covers Denver sports, said that at the Combine last week, Texas cornerback Chris Boyd said he was asked, do you have both of your testicles? Not quite sure why you would ask that of a player. Chase Goodbread of NFL.com reported that cornerback Lonnie Johnson of Kentucky said that the Seahawks put him in a staring contest with someone that lasted 15 or 16 seconds. This was during his interview. Do you think they brought a dude there who was really good at staring? Or, or was it just like, a regular it was like staffer. the intern that was in the room? I don't know. Johnson said he did win. Um, but 15, 16 seconds does not seem like a very long time for staring. So uh, Josh uh, did a little research here and found a story from Medical Daily in uh, 2012 that reported a new world record for staring of 40 minutes and 59 seconds. It was a staring contest in Australia between... Two guys, Fergal, Eyesore, Fleming, and Stephen Stairmaster Stag. Stairmaster won. What happened? No, wait. Stairmaster lost. He blinked uh, at 40 minutes and 59 seconds. So I'm sorry, Eyesore Fleming. Congratulations to you. How long do you think you could go, Jamal? <laughs> uh, this has never been my area of strength. Um I don't know, maybe like 45 seconds. <laughs> You're saying you can beat Lonnie Johnson? Yeah, I think I can. Three-cone drill, 40-yard dash, staring. Staring contest. Staring contest. All right, Stefan, what is your eyesore, Fleming? You may have seen the video last week of Bill Walton visiting with the gymnastics team at his alma mater, UCLA, wearing a tie-dyed T-shirt. Walton grabs a high bar while a gymnast twirls next to him. He lies on a mat while gymnasts tumble over him. At the end of the clip, which Walton posted on Twitter, he's lying on his back with an ice pack on his forehead. Did I make the team? 
All right, that's the Bill Walton we all know, goofy, loopy, lovable old deadhead turned broadcaster. But in the 1970s, starting with when he played for John Wooden at UCLA and was arrested during a campus anti-war demonstration, Walton was a real deal member of the sports counterculture. I'd forgotten just how much. Walton was close to Jack Scott, the anti-establishment sports activist and reformer who founded the Institute for Study of Sport and Society at Berkeley and worked with, among others, Tommy Smith and John Carlos of Olympics fame, the NFL player Dave Megacy, and Chip Oliver, the Oakland Raiders linebacker who quit to join a commune whom I talked about a few weeks ago. In a September 1975 story in the New York Times Magazine, our friend Robert Lipsight wrote that Scott and his partner Mickey McGee lived with Walton in an old rental house in Portland and counseled and encouraged him during his rough rookie season with the Trailblazers in 1974. Walton lost weight and the Blazers wanted wanted him to start eating meat, which he refused to do. He also refused to take cortisone shots and painkillers for a bone spur. And he was accused of faking injury to get out of his contract to go play for the Lakers. That, Lipside explained, hardened Walton's distrust of what Walton called the major white upper class media, which also had characterized him as a dupe of Jack Scott. Yeah, my guru, Walton told Lipside. In this society, they don't expect an athlete to speak for himself or to be able to lead his own life. The only thing I'm supposed to know is how to put the ball through the hoop. Everything else is said for me or explained to me, right? Walton's relationship with Scott would get him questioned by the FBI in 1975 in connection with the case of Patty Hearst, the heiress who was kidnapped by and participated in crimes with a terrorist group called the Symbionese Liberation Army. Scott and McGee disappeared for a few months in early 1975 and were believed to have been hiding Hearst in a farmhouse in Pennsylvania. Walton drove from Portland to San Francisco to be interviewed by the FBI. He said he never talked about Hearst with Scott and didn't know where Scott was. Shortly before he died in 1990, Scott told the FBI that he had, in fact, hidden Hearst from the police. A month after talking to the FBI, though, Walton renounced the meeting at a news conference arranged by Jack Scott's lawyer. Walton said he was terribly sorry that he had cooperated in any way, shape, or form with such a counterproductive organization as the FBI, which he called the enemy. He name-dropped Mahatma Gandhi and endorsed a discipline of love truth and justice, and he urged the people of the world to stand with us in our rejection of the U.S. government. In a profile around the same time in the music and culture magazine Crawdaddy, Walton was asked if he was in fact trying to get out of his Trailblazers contract. Walton responded by talking about the ills of the ruling class and writers attempting to discredit him, quote, so that people will think what I do is so much jive. My success, Walton said, is their failure. This line of thinking went over great in the major white upper-class media, of course, which pointed out that Walton was being paid a lot of money to play a game and that he lived in a country in which he was free to criticize the government. Walton said he liked playing basketball at the highest level and that being paid well wasn't incompatible with believing that society was messed up. As for the money, Walton noted that it was spread over years of deferred payments. Given the economic situation in this country, he said, no one knows what that paper money will be worth by the next time I get to see it. It may be next to worthless. All Walton is good Walton, but early Walton was pretty amazing. I feel like he must have just told that whole story during an Oregon-Arizona State game. <laughs> <laughs> have you ever spent time with Bill Walton, Jamel? 
I have. Um, and in fact, um, probably one of the the best moments we ever had when I did uh, Sports Center was we had not just Bill Walton, we had um, Bill Walton and Dick Vitale on together. So imagine what that was like. <laughs> yeah, the time Dick Vitale was interrogated by the FBI was something too. <laughs> well, the thing is, uh, they got to going so much. I mean, and they were just real lathered up and going back and forth <laughs> that we we just stopped asking them questions and we actually put our feet up on the sports center desk and just let them go. Yeah, I was <laughs> going to say, more- I'd imagine you probably didn't get that many words in. During that, no, that they they've been un, un, uninterrupted for a good ten minutes. <laughs> it was it was wonderful television, and uh, I agree with you. I mean, Bill Walton, protect Bill Walton at all costs. He's a national treasure. Josh, what's your eyesore, Fleming? Zion Williamson's shoe explosion a couple of weeks ago did not just screw up Zion Williamson's knee; it also ruined Barack Obama's evening. The 44th president went to Durham, North Carolina for uh, the Duke, North Carolina game that night, which was never competitive. He would have surely had a much better time at the game Stefan and I went to on Sunday night in which Malia and Sasha's school, Washington, D.C.'s private Sidwell friends, took on Stefan's daughter's school, the public Woodrow Wilson High, in the District of Columbia State Championship game. It was a big surprise that Sidwell was in the game, although Josh Hart, who won an NCAA title at Villanova and is now on the Lakers, graduated from Sidwell a few years ago. Uh, Sidwell now has no players with Division I basketball scholarship offers, although they do have a guy who's going to Stanford to play offensive tackle. Their best player, 6'1 point guard Jason Gibson, uh, according to the Washington Post, has been getting mild interest from Division II and three schools. Uh, Gibson made a buzzer beater in the quarterfinals against McKinley Tech to allow Sidwell to advance. He scored 28 in Sidwell's 53-49 victory in the state semifinals over favored St. John's. In the other semi, uh, Wilson beat Murray 65-36. to This was not a surprise. Wilson is the defending D.C. champ and has a stacked roster. Uh, their point guard, Jay Heath, is going to Boston College. Guard Dominguez Stevens has offers from schools including Louisville, and they also have a pair of six foot nine twins, Mackay and Mikkel Mitchell, who are both committed to Maryland. The Mitchell twins transferred to Wilson last year after playing with R.J. Barrett at Montverde Academy in Florida. That's also the school where Ben Simmons went, among other players. Wilson's coach, Angelo Hernandez, was actually put on administrative leave for four months last year because of an investigation into the residency of two of his players. Because Wilson is a public school, every player, including transfers, must have proof of of residency in the school's boundary. But Hernandez was reinstated before the season started. D.C. public schools did not comment on the results of the investigation. So things went according to plan for Wilson this year. Uh, They had those four great players. The coach was on the sidelines. And then Sunday happened. Sidwell's Dean Maslich, who's uh, listed by the Washington Post at five foot seven and 155 pounds and watching in person, that seems like a generous listing. He hit a three-pointer at the first half buzzer to give Sidwell a 29 to 27 lead, much to the chagrin of Wilson parent Stefan Fatsis. Wilson, which has 73% minority enrollment, had an all-black roster this year. Sidwell, which is just more than 50% white in terms of its enrollment, has a racially mixed roster. But in Sunday's game, all but three of the team's points were scored by white players. 
Wilson's six foot nine twins, the Mitchell brothers, both had three fouls in the first half, and I could hear some black fans muttering, you can see what's going on here. The racial scenario here was not that simple. It bears noting that the, all of the refs were black, um, and yet there was still an uncomfortable Hoosiers-ish vibe in the arena. By the end of regulation, the six foot nine twins had both fouled out, having scored a combined 10 points. But in overtime, Sidwell's Jason Gibson, the guy with the Division II and Division III interest, he fouled out with 24 points. And Wilson took a 62 to 60 lead on a long pass and layup with under 10 seconds to go. Sidwell then drove back up the floor without taking a timeout, took a long three at the buzzer, and somehow it went in. Sidwell wins. Sidwell storms the floor to celebrate, except actually Wilson had taken a timeout. And so everyone had to go back to the benches and we had to do the whole thing over again. Sidwell again drove the length of the court. Five foot seven, Dean Maslish, the guy who hit the buzzer beater in the first half, who I shit you not, looks like a 21st century version of Ali from Hoosiers dribbles behind his back at the top of the key to create space, shoots a high-arcing rainbow as the buzzer goes off, and somehow it went in. And this one counted. Sidwell won, this time for real. It was one of the craziest endings of a basketball game I've ever seen in person. Congratulations to Sidwell and Barack Obama. Condolences to Stefan Fatsis. How did I do, Stefan? Yeah, you did all right. (laughs) Yeah, those Sidwell kids really needed a break. I'm really happy for them. It was really Hoosiers is a good analogy, Josh, but it was like Hoosiers at $50,000 a year tuition. <laughs> That's all you have to say for yourself? Yeah, well, I was a little, I was a little disappointed. I mean, it's one of those, you know, it, there really is this tension in D.C. between Wilson, which is the biggest public school by far in the city, um, and it is one of the most racially diverse schools probably in the country. The the percentage of, of black students is declining as more white kids within the district choose to go to a, an improved public education system to go to public high school. But it's still like 35% black and about thir- uh, 30, uh, 30% um, white and about 20 to 30% uh, Latino and Asian. So it is this crazy, wonderful, diverse community that has very few resources. The coaches are barely paid for their sports. Um, And Sidwell and the other private schools have a lot of resources Um, and a lot of kids that get a lot of coaching that probably reflects a little bit of the inequities of the pay for play youth sports system in America. Um, So that's uh, a lot. That's a lot to put on a buzzer beater, Stefan. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But you know, great game. Sidwell played better. They deserve to win. We'll send you the, uh, the uh, uh, video of the of the buzzer beaters, Jamal. It's pretty insane. <laughs> I would love to see it. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. Jamal Hill, thank you so much for joining us today. Well, thank you guys for having me. I really appreciate it. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. And you can email us at hangup at slate.com. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Zelmo Beatty. And thanks for listening. Lucky 
Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. <laughs> 